Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Michael Sweet for Walden, a game. Michael is also the artistic director of the video game scoring program at Berklee College of Music in Boston. You'll hear more from Michael shortly. First, it's patron of the week, David Bangerter. David is a huge Assassin's Creed fan to the point that he's taken trips across the world for the game. He has a podcast and a YouTube channel devoted to that series. But there's only one AC track on his list of favorites, and we talk about why, because he does love all the music in the series. The track he chose is from Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag by Brian Tyler, but we started off talking about I'll Face Myself from Persona 4 by Shoji Maguro. It's kind of one of the core tracks of the Persona 4 game. And um, I made this list also before Persona 5 came out, which also has an amazing soundtrack by the same composer. But the reason that I like Persona 4 a little more than Persona 5, now that I've finished both, is kind of reflected in this track a little bit. So there's actually, it's actually the boss fight music. There's like a hard rocking version. And then once you've defeated the boss, there's kind of like a quieter piano uh, version as well. And the track basically um, encompasses this idea that the boss fights in Persona 4 are kind of everyday students or people that you're rescuing from this shadow world. But the bosses are actually the manifestations of their darker impulses. Like everybody kind of, I think, has personality traits or sides of themselves that they're not like super proud of or like that they wish they could improve. And what I find really fascinating about Persona 4 is like, in the Persona world, they're manifested as these shadow versions of yourself. And they say all the things that you might be thinking deep down, like jealousy or anger or all these kind of dark emotions. Um, and it's like the physical manifestation of that. And then when the person encounters their shadow and they say, that's not me, like, I would never say that, like, I'm not like that. It's when they reject that, that the that the shadow form kind of mutates into these really creative and fantastic bosses that you then have to kind of beat down into submission. And then what happens at the end of it is that um, when the piano kind of requiem is playing, it's the person kind of accepting that the shadow is a part of themselves. Once they accept that, then they can unlock the power of their persona in this uh, in this shadow world. And it's just a really beautiful and I think really kind of nuanced idea that I don't see explored in a lot of games. And so what I love about the track is like it's got this kind of it's, it's a great boss battle track when it's got the guitars and it's just really dark and you kind of feel like you're kind of um, striving, struggling against something. But then like the piano version is very contemplative and reflective. And the piano version eventually transforms into more of like an optimistic track 
near kind of like the second half of it, which is kind of the person saying like, okay, no, you're right. This is me. And like, I accept that. And like, I'm going to move forward on that. And I just really love this idea. Persona 5 has kind of a similar idea, but the the bosses and people you're going after in that game are so far gone. They're so far down the rabbit hole of like their worst impulses that they're like kind of beyond redemption. And like Persona 5 is like, okay, we just got to nuke it from orbit. And like <laughs> there's satisfaction in taking on villains like that. Like if you think about like if you could imagine taking down people who have done really awful things. But I found Persona 4 stuff just really, they're just like everyday people with everyday like impulses and kind of coming to terms with that. And I, that's why I really love the track um, because it really encapsulates kind of some of the core ideas of the game and it's something that I thought was really unique. I was joking with you a little earlier about how I, you know, I knew that you're this giant Assassin's Creed like aficionado, really. Yeah. I mean, you know so much about the series, and you have a YouTube channel about it. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Sure. But when you sent me the list, I was just so surprised there was one Assassin's Creed track on there, and not even the one you would expect. You know, you'd almost be like, "Oh, Ezio's family." Okay, yeah. <laughs> cool, because that song's great, right? Exactly. But but you chose yeah. something from Black Flag, and I had such a blast with that game. So talk yeah. to me about the the track that Brian Tyler did for um, Assassin's Creed Four. Yeah, I did want to specifically try to avoid the more obvious stuff that you know, Yes for Kids work on that is so iconic, and I love it. And but I mean, I thought I'd reach a little deeper into the back catalog a little bit for something a little more unique. And Black Flag is just, um, along with Assassin's Creed 2, just probably my favorite Assassin's Creed game. And the song I picked is called The British Empire. Uh, this one was done by Brian Tyler. Um, he did most of the soundtrack and then along with uh, Sarah Schachner, who is now composing Origins, uh, which is really cool and can't wait for that. And I don't know, it's something about it is just a really, it's just a really beautiful track. It's just really kind of, um, I believe it plays when you first arrive in Havana, uh, which is near the beginning of the game. And it's kind of like ambient music as you're wandering around. A lot of it is kind of me, I think, just projecting my general feelings of the game onto the track. But it kind of, to me, when I listen to it, um, I don't really think as much about Havana as I do about kind of Edward's story. And Edward is just a wonderful character who is very flawed. And, you know, the story, what I love about Black Flag is it's so grand and, uh, you know, epic with like all these big ship battles and the man of war and like you're sailing through the seas and everything. But at the core of Black Flag is just this very personal story about Edward, who's grown up poor and he has great ambitions um, that kind of overtake um, the rest of his sensibilities to the point where he kind of loses his way a little bit. Or at least he's kind of lost his way a little bit at the beginning. He's very selfish. He, all he wants to do is get fame and money. And it's all about his journey towards accepting responsibility for his actions and finding what he cares about in the world. And, you know, he only kind of finds that after 
he loses a lot of his pirate friends. And spoiler alert: a lot of pirates died in the historical, <laughs> like <laughs> in the golden age of piracy. And I won't spoil the very, very end for the people who haven't played it. But I think it's just a very beautiful kind of arc that he has. song just kind of reminds me of is it's a li- it's just beautiful it's a little melancholy it's just the perfect ambient track for the, i think that kind of sad story like in my mind uh, tell us a little bit about your youtube channel it was beginning of 2011 i started a youtube channel kind of focusing on assassin's creed and initially it was just the multiplayer which had just come out with assassin's creed brotherhood and so i focused on a lot of like tutorial videos because i had seen other youtube videos that helped me and i wanted to kind of um share what i had learned and everything but then i had been a fan of the series since ac1 and kind of parlayed that into doing a lot of interviews so i've interviewed pretty much all of the creative or game directors for all the games in the series and most of the main voice actors as well and pretty much all the composers except for brian tyler is one of the (laughs) funnily enough is like probably the big notable exception but i've also you know i've interviewed jesper kidd lauren balf the flight uh olivier derivier um like all those guys uh for a podcast i do called the assassin's den so it covers not just composers but voice actors and Um, other people associated with the franchise. And so I do that, and then I do a bunch of other just random video projects related to Assassin's Creed on my channel. So it's like I took a trip to Italy in 2013, I believe, Um, and then like spliced it together with uh, footage of the game, kind of like a compare and contrast how the game and and real life kind of measure against each other and kind of like the historical differences that any any discrepancies or similarities between the two um and i called it my assassin's creed pilgrimage um i also went to istanbul for revelations oh cool it, it was really cool so I'll, sometimes i'll do random projects like that and stuff like that has been really well received and it's just been really a wonderful uh outlet for my fandom to be able to to do stuff like this and you know through the podcast and through interviews at e3 and other conventions i've met you know a lot of my heroes that have made so many cool things for these for this series and just super fortunate David's other choices were Aurora's theme for Child of Light by Coeur de Pirat. Pursuit Cornered from Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney by Masakazu Sujimori. (laughs) 
and Ballad of the Wind Fish from Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening by Kazumi Tataka, Kazue Ishikawa, and Minako Hamano. You can learn more about becoming a patron of the week at patreon.com level. All right, Michael Sweet. He's been a game composer and sound designer for many years. He's written for more than 100 casual titles. He also designed the startup sound for the Xbox 360. Do you remember this? His newest project was the music and sound for a game about Henry David Thoreau, who wrote the book Walden, or Life in the Woods. Well, it turns out Michael lives not very far from there, from Walden Pond, which gave him some unique opportunities to create the sound for the game and also inspiration for the music, which is fabulous, by the way. But we start off by talking about his teaching career. So my official title at Berklee College of Music is the artistic director of the video game scoring program. And at Berklee, we have two minors that relate to game audio, specifically one's a scoring minor and one is a sound design minor. And I I lead the scoring curriculum, the development of that for the college. And I've been working there since fall of 2008. Which is when the program started, right? Well, it actually goes back a little bit before then. So uh, we had a, a single class on the book since I think 2006, and that was a um, kind of an introduction to game audio production. And so that was a, a single semester course which covered all the elements of game audio. So a little bit of sound design, a little bit of voiceover, a little bit of, of music. Uh, and so they were Berkeley was kind of putting their toe in the water, so to speak. And then when I came in, we developed a much broader curriculum kind of a series of, of three classes uh, beyond the original, uh, the original one that we had that focused mostly on music. And then the um, sound design program grew up a little bit out of that a couple years after that. So now I think we have, between the undergraduate program and our master's program in Valencia, I think we have about a dozen classes or so that, that touch on video games in some way. Some are very specific to it. Some are more broad-based, nonlinear types of classes where nonlinear studies of, of media uh, that would include everything from video games to virtual and, and augmented reality and narrative devices used across those as well. 
how many students try to try to get in each year? So I um, I calculated this recently in terms of how many students we touch with our curriculum every semester within within the Boston community, and I think we we have about a hundred. So Berkeley's about four thousand students between four. I guess we're up to five now because we merged with the Boston Conservatory over the past year and a half, and that's still going on. And uh, so we have about 5,000 students, I think, total at the college. And every semester, we have about 150 students taking game audio-related classes. In fact, that's probably a little low. It's probably just the scoring part. So add another 50 or so for um, some of the sound design components, too. And so that's maybe about closer to 200 every semester students are, are taking these classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, some obviously go through the entire program and, and take you know a series of classes. So we see them multiple semesters in a row. But that's probably about the number of students that, that are involved with game audio each semester. Didn't they kind of ask you to come and do this? Yes. So... Well, it's related to that. It's actually more related to a student group that was there. So before we really had a lot of video game classes at Berkeley, uh, there was kind of an outcry from a student group that was formed, which was the Video Game Music Club, which at the very start had, uh, you know, well over 100 members that would attend a meeting every week to talk about video game uh, scoring and audio. And there wasn't really a dedicated person on staff to teach that. Janine Cohen, who is one of our, um, she's uh, uh, involved with curriculum design, and uh, I think her official title is Vice President of Curriculum Design at Berkeley. She had actually worked at Turbine and on a bunch of games, and so she actually started one of the classes, uh, that very initial class back in 2006. And then the the students were like, we we want more of this. We want to be able to take uh, classes that are dedicated to just game audio and game scoring. We want to learn how to do that. And then the the um, college did a search, and I was one of I think three or four finalists. And ultimately, I. I got the gig at Berkeley to start designing and um, creating these classes for students. So it actually was kind of almost a student movement that pushed pushed Berkeley to really put these classes on the books. Wonderful. Uh, How did you end up there? I mean, how did you get into game audio in the first place? So really kind of through the back door in a way. And I think that uh, now when students come to me and come to Berkeley, I have students that come to Berkeley because they see Yoko Shimomura or or Nobuyo Imatsu composing music for games. And they say, oh, I want to be like them when I graduate um, college. Back when I started Berkeley in the 80s, video games were such a tiny industry and such a small niche that it was something totally out of the realm of possibilities for me. I had a really strong technology background and I had a really strong sort of musical background. And when I moved to New York in 1990, those skills culminated together uh, in this kind of niche that we call video games and interactive media and all that kind of stuff. And so my first game was back in 1992. I was working for a music production company in New York and uh, that music production company had a bunch of sort of staff composers and I was uh, kind of an assistant 
dub room person. I was kind of making my way up through the ranks. And no one really wanted to work on this project. And so it was called Time Warp with the Flintstones and the Jetsons, who are cartoon characters from, you know, the 50s and 60s. And that was my first game that I worked on. And it was this really beautiful convergence of like kind of all my areas of knowledge, which is sort of the tech side and the creative music side. And I also did the sound design for it as well. So it was, you know, music sound design. And that sort of technical side at the very sort of, you know, pre-internet, which also (laughs) was very challenging to get information about, like, I had to convert to this weird file format that I had no idea what it was, and I had to go to, like to books like and see like there was no new like an ask around and stuff like that but it's not like today where you can get instant access to information and so sure. um it was a lot of trial and error and 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 things like that and so since then I've worked on about 130 video games mostly kids and casual games. The thing that you find out when you start your career, you know, is if someone says, oh, wow, you did a great job on that, and your first job was a kid's game, then they're going to keep coming back to you for kid's (laughs) games and things like that. So I love doing kid's music, and um, I've worked with with all kinds of different companies, including Lego and Sesame Workshop and Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and things like that on different types of projects, and I really kind of enjoyed that. Also, New York is kind of uh, an interesting place to kind of grow up in games. It's not the West Coast. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the games are casual games. They're nonviolent, most of them. Uh, so we also had really diverse teams, unlike many c- teams sort of on the West Coast and things like that, which were mostly male-dominated. It was a little bit more even spread between uh, men and women, at least in the teams that I worked with in New York. Uh, and it, it, it also affected the kinds of games that we were making as well. But then didn't you run a sound design company for a while there? Yes. So I I ran a company called Audio Brain in New York, and they're still around. And when we were um, together, when I was, and I still consult with them on, on various projects, it was kind of this combination of music and, um, and sound and uh, some implementation and programming as well. And I've never really uh, separated them. I think there is a tendency, well, on, on big games, uh, say like The Last of Us or Uncharted or on very big games, you have very uh, big sound teams. You have a whole audio team with sound designers and composers and implementers and programmers and producers where in many cases the the teams for for casual and kids games were smaller and Frequently, I was wearing many hats. I was, you know, it was the audio guy. It wasn't, you know, oh, we have the composer. And it it was more like, oh, what do you mean you don't do sound design? I thought you were the audio person. (laughs) So on one hand, it's awesome to be able to do your own sound design because you can make sure it's in the right key. A lot of times I'll play games and I'll be like, oh, that's a tritone away from what your music is in. Don't you notice that when you're putting it together? Um, and it'd be really dissonant, you know, like the mm-hmm. UI sound effects would be totally in the wrong key than the music and things like that. The, that probably wouldn't happen in a game that I was working on because <laughs> I was doing those UI sounds at the same time. Of course, uh, it also let, there were a lot fewer assets in, in the games I was producing versus um, some of the much larger games like Mass Effect and things like that that were going on on the West Coast. 
So then how did you decide to, did you leave Audio Brain because of Berkeley or what, what was all that about? So there were several factors that sort of led me to, to teaching. When, when you start writing music uh, in the video game industry or the television industry or, or, or in movies, one of the things that uh, happens is that uh, you are writing music pretty much for someone else. If you're not able to satisfy someone else's sort of vision of what the narrative is supposed to be in the, in the product or whatever you're working on is supposed to be, then you're, you're not going to be a successful composer, right? It's, it's that transaction of being able to write music for a specific vision. So you, you kind of have to be creative on demand. So I noticed that, that when I was growing up, you know, music, music was the thing that like saved my life. Music literally on, on multiple occasions like held, held me together. Mm-hmm. And then as I was doing it 12 hours a day, every day, you know, coming into the office, my relationship to music changed. And I was doing it uh, kind of for a, a paycheck in a way. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I really felt like I missed music from, a, um, from like a core level. In any case, um, so I, I, on the side, kind of around uh, 2000 or so, I, I taught one class a semester at Parsons and thought, oh, when I'm 60, I might teach or something. And Monday nights, I would go down and I would teach a class in sound design. And um, and I, I, I really kind of enjoyed it. And then this opportunity at Berkeley came along and I was like, well, you know what, this this would really allow me to A, do projects that I really care about. Because that's the other thing too, is when you are, you can't be picky and choosy about projects that are coming in the door if you are reliant on that income to pay next month's rent. So there were jobs that would come in the door that I really cared about that we honestly wouldn't be able to do because they didn't generate enough income. By the time you like pay all your expenses and you have a studio and employees and things like that. Yeah. So the company grew to such an extent where I, I, I wanted to believe in the projects that I was working on uh, from a creative point of view. And, and what teaching allows me to do is I have a day job so I can take projects that I really care about on the side. Sure. And, and now music is much more of the thing that sort of saves my life, you know, or saves me than having to worry about it for, for like income. So I actually feel more connected to music now that I teach than I did when I was writing music every day. So um, it, it, it's worked out for me. It's allowed me to cre- you know, work on projects that are sort of near and dear to my heart. have students who have gone on? I mean, what are some of the things that students have gotten to do since they've been through the program? That's the most exciting part for me as a teacher, right, is to watch mm-hmm. my students go out and be successful, to watch my students go work for Sony or for Riot or for Blizzard or for 2K um, or Disney, right? It's awesome. And it's really fun. It's really fun to see, like, uh, I'm going out to speak 
at Casual Connect in a few weeks, and my my former student is actually curating their audio talks. <laughs> so it's 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 interesting to see the students that I had sort of go on and be successful in the industry in various ways. I think the hardest thing from a teacher's point of view. Um, this is a competitive field. It's very difficult. Uh, it's hard to get into, and I do my best to talk about uh, the career aspects and and how to how to make next month's rent. But it, it, there are so many other factors that are are some of them are unteachable things. Uh, some you know, it's different than teaching music theory, but teaching them enough career based material that they can survive month to month earning uh, enough money doing what they love, which is the music side of things. Um, so it's always special when I see them, like we'll have events out at uh, the Game Developers Conference or other types of conferences where they'll all sort of come and I'll get to see them and hear about what they're doing. Um, and and some will, you know, leave the music industry too. That That's just sort of a part of, of a, a very competitive over crowded kind of field. But yeah, no, it's it's fantastic when I see them do great work. Uh, give us a sense of, you know, what maybe one of the uh, freshman level courses might be. What what kinds of things do they do and how, just how this works? So the in- introductory class, at least in terms of the music scoring program, is really an overview of not only the historical perspective of game music, but also starting to talk about the differences between game music and game scoring versus linear uh, medium. So a lot of the things cross over, you know, the emotional aspects of film music and how to write emotional film music, those things carry over into video game music as well. But there are specific things about video game music that are also incredibly different. Primarily because the player is the editor, the real-time editor of this, you know, this game, this this adventure that the player is going to go on, and that means that the music, the composer has to compose the music in such a way that it's malleable from scene to scene. You know, how do you get from one piece of music to another? Or how do you get from sad to happy, or win to lose, or uh, progress through a puzzle, or or use motifs in the way that we hear in film and opera in such a way that it feels like a seamless experience. Um, ultimately, I want my composers to recognize that, um, that that player is the editor, and the more seamless they're able to make the music, the more immersive that experience is going to be for the player. So I want them to notice music changes. Um, so a lot of times what I'll do, at least initially in those, those classes, is I'll record uh, game footage multiple passes, uh, like I'll take a game like Uncharted 2, for instance, and I'll turn off all the sound effects and the um, and the dialogue so we can just hear the music on its own. And then as I'm playing through it, when I hear a music change, I'll try and back out of that music change. What was the thing that caused it? What was the, quote, control input for the music system? Was it because I went from the cave to the forest? Was it because the creature came um, down from the mountain? Is it because the uh, uh, it went from morning to afternoon? Were there other things happening in the world that changed that? Was it based on the number of enemies that I'm battling or um, progress through a puzzle? And um, 
in many ways, it's, it's my job to sort of break games so that I can understand them and then present them to students and say, this is what the composer was thinking about. This is how he's achieving that. Whether it's a puzzle game like Peggle 2, which has really excellent interactive music by Guy Whitmore, to Mass Effect with Jack Wall and some of the really incredible things that he did, interactive things with that score. Or we look at um, maybe a less interactive score, but a very emotional, touching score, like uh, the score for The Last Guardian or something like that, where it's less about interactive tricks to get the music to work, but it's just writing a great piece of music for a game that really immerses you in a relationship between two characters. some other games that you would point to as, you know, examples where, okay, this team or this, you know, person or what what have you really nailed it? <laughs> the list sort of goes on and on and on and on. Sure. I think that um, there are games that personally touch me that I like to play, not only from a player perspective, but also from a, an academic composer perspective, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Last of Us is beautiful in that way. Being a dad and playing The Last of Us, which is basically about uh, this father that loses his daughter and then has to reconnect with a person that is like his daughter, right? That mm -hmm. is an incredible emotional game, but also the, the music in that game is also suits that... Um, story so well that, you know, it feels seamless. It's almost like you don't even notice the music. It's just about the immers immersion in the experience itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I love games that take more of a sound design approach in their music. Games like Limbo and Inside, I think, are really fantastic. Inside has these beautiful sound design puzzles in the middle of it where um, the sound can actually hurt you uh, mm -hmm. in the middle of the game. It's this really great sequence. And Martin Stig Anderson, who did both those games, is really kind of an expert at being able to pull you in using sound design techniques as music normally would. You could look at Austin Wintry scores, do a fantastic job of, of immersing you into a, a, a place that, that is very unique from Journey to Abzu, uh, which have these really incredible musical moments. Abzu has this beautiful musical moment at the end where you kind of are chasing through these underwater cities uh, very sort of quickly. And Austin uses uh, a bunch of different textures from woodwinds to choir and vocals and strings kind of all intermixing. And it's this beautiful experience. And it feels very seamless. You don't even notice the scene changes when you go from one part to another. Mm -hmm. And I think that he, he does that really well in terms of having a very seamless experience that, that is always supporting the player without just say, cutting off the music and starting a new cue. Mm -hmm. Everything feels very smooth. One of the games that I've been working on for a really long time just came out last week, so I should probably say something about that. I've been working on a game called Walden with the USC Game Innovation Lab. Um, uh, again, this is kind of one of, it goes back to that idea of working on projects that you really care about. Mm -hmm. When we first started that project, we had no money, zero. Um, and Tracy, the game designer, came to me and said, hey, 
you know, will you work on this? Uh, it's a it's a project that I've always wanted to do, and uh, she has a way of kind of talking me into um, working on her projects because they're always really innovative and really interesting. And I, I happen to live just a few miles away from Walden Pond, so I was able to, from the sound design perspective, actually go to Walden Pond and and sometimes out in my backyard just record all the uh, so all the sound design, all the birds and wind and crickets and wow. you know frogs and and things like that, but also create a score that that I think really works for the game. The music in the game basically is, there are two things affecting it. One is how well you're doing in the game. And we base that on a parameter we call inspiration, being inspired by the world itself. And and that's calculated basically on a a life-work balance kind of thing. So if you spend all your time farming in the world and uh, building your house and things like that, the world gets kind of gray and your inspiration goes down. And so the music is built up in layers so that if your inspiration's down, then you hear less music, where if your inspiration goes up, then you hear more of those layers, more of the music layers come in. But it's also based on the seasons, and and Thoreau, who the game's about, you basically play as Henry David Thoreau, always thought four seasons was too few to really enjoy the the richness of the, the passing of the season. So he always felt like there should be eight seasons. So the music actually corresponds to that. So we have eight major themes in the game that relate to those eight seasons that we have. So it was really kind of a joy to work on it. Tracy's been working on it for almost a decade. I came in about maybe 2011, 12, and worked on it. And we did get some money from the National Endowment of the Humanities and the National Endowment of the Arts, but it was a project that you know a lot of love went into ultimately. And uh, so I am pretty proud of that. And it was, it was really exciting to work on. In the game itself, you can actually click on literally every plant and every tree and every animal in the game and find out, you know, and hear many times a quote that Thoreau wrote about it, but also writing that he did about uh, the various wildlife that that was going on at that time. But also to learn other things too, like, you know, for instance, that cardinals, which are really common now, they migrated north after Thoreau. So I couldn't put, for instance, cardinal songs in the game or... I, I could have, but I made the choice to actually do a little bit of historical research in terms of the kinds of birds that were around during the time of Thoreau and, and things like that. So we tried to be, you know, historically accurate too within terms of the, the way that we created the ambient soundscapes. What platforms are, is it on? How do people play it? So we released initially on Mac and PC, so you can play that today if you want. We released on Itch.io, uh, so Itch.io. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you type in Walden and Itch.io, it would come up right away. And we're completing the ports for Xbox and PlayStation, PlayStation first. 
I'm not sure about the timeline. It's running on a PlayStation, but we have some bugs to work out. So probably uh, early fall is when they're going to be released for, for those. It's just been such a pleasure to speak with you and get to know you better. And I've just known of you for so long now. And I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think that informing people about kind of this as a teacher, you know, it's really exciting to help people better understand what an awesome medium this is and some of the really creative work that's going on. And and you've definitely done that over the last many years by interviewing composers. So I'm also equally grateful to uh, to you for bringing that to a wider audience. Thanks for listening to episode 75 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Michael Sweet at michaelsweet.com and see a playlist at patreon.com slash level. Michael is our guest for the Five Songs podcast this week. You can uh, learn about getting that special content at patreon.com slash level as well. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily. And learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, which is made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and Brad Gentle. Level with Emily is a production of June Media, Inc.